0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky-Wilson.
1: And I am Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, we are talking about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, or the worst thing in the best words. Now, I may be slightly overstating the case, but I was just sucked in by the delightful parallelism with justification by faith, which I called the best thing in the worst words. And honestly, there's... Little not to love about justification by faith. But when it comes to the church or the doctrine of the church, which is called ecclesiology, there are strong passions aroused. Um, Dad, as I was getting ready for this episode, I was remembering back when I was both a seminary student and then as a graduate student when I was a teaching assistant for the introduction to systematic theology class. I remember how it kind of seemed like through, you know, two thirds of the semester, most people were. Kind Kind of glazing over in class, you know, like and hypostasis and meophysites and you know what are these things and why do I care? And and um, and then we would get to the third article of the creed doctrine of the spirit under which falls the church. And all of a sudden, people would kind of snap to attention, and they would get very worked up. And, But on the flip side, kind of the funny contrast to this is people suddenly noticing and caring, I, I think probably just because church actually related to their more vivid experience and why they were there at seminary at all, On the other side of this equation was the assortment of professors who then had to interpret the phrase, one holy Catholic and apostolic church in the Nicene Creed. And it seemed like the main burden of that teaching was the church is one, well, even though it doesn't look remotely one. And the church is holy, well, of course, we can't really say that it's holy by looking at it. And the church is Catholic, which means universal, even though, well, it isn't. And it is uh, definitely apostolic, though there are, of course, some issues in the transmission and how you even define that word. <laughs> and So it seemed like it was this sort of a white queen from through the looking glass exercise in believing impossible things. And somehow the idea that one God could in fact be three was, you know, child's play compared to believing that the church might be holy or one. Um, <laughs> I wonder if when you teach, you ever have the same experience on, on either side of the, the, the seats.
1: Well, of course. Uh, but I think the, the, The error that I try to correct immediately is to remind uh, my students that this is an article of faith. We believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It's not an article of sight. It's not an empirically verifiable thing at all. Uh, What's empirically verifiable is rather what you talked about, this motley mess (laughs) through the ages and across the globe uh, that assembles around the word and sacraments of Christ and that that's the thing that you can see in the world and it's not one it's not obviously holy it's not obviously catholic and it's not obviously apostolic all of those affirmations are affirmations of faith regarding the empirical reality which appears subcontrario, under the, it appears the opposite of what it really is often
0: right but I think that could easily lead us into this sort of contrarian or even quixotic you know I'm or to quote Tertullian I'm going to believe it because it's impossible but in our previous episodes and I think in our whole theological careers I mean our, our business as theologians is to give give reasons for believing and not simply assert that it's so and you ought to believe it and that settles it and you know now go away and play so well,
1: now, whoa 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 is the loaf on the the altar, obviously, the body of Christ is the cup, obviously His blood is the baptized, obviously a new creation.
0: No, but in all cases we have summoned reasons, you know, from from Scripture and good solid sources for thinking so. My only point is that somehow this um willing suspension of disbelief, shall we call it. Um, <laughs> suddenly has a much harder time when it gets to the doctrine of the church. Anyway, that has been my experience that that so these things are somehow more easily taken on faith. And the reasons offered in Scripture and in the long history of theological reflection, have been like, okay, I can see that I can get there. But then when you get to the church, suddenly, like I said, passions are aroused, and it gets a lot harder.
1: Yeah, sure. And I think a lot of that has to do that sense of impassioned disbelief at this article of faith, has to do with the church's um, highly self-contradictory existence. On the one hand, it is the bearer and representative of the promise of the universal community of love. On the other hand, its actual life is a constant betrayal of the very love that it represents. And you can't have one without the other, uh, it seems to me. Uh, The church is both the trumpet in the world calling us, uh, summoning us to the vision of a universal community of love, what Augustine called Civitatis Dei, the city or society of God. And it's also the... Uh, in Augustine's word, corpus permixtum, the uh, mixed or mixed up, or uh, the sheep and the goat are all tangled together. The weeds and the the weeds and the wheat, and you can't disengage them without destroying the growing, the living growth. Uh, so these paradoxes are right there at the center of everything we have to say. I think about the church.
0: Well, I think it is at the center of what we have to say about it, but I think there are also a lot of traditions, Christian traditions, that strongly push back against that, that want to argue for a truly pure community or to preserve some aspect of the church that is not permixed at all, but is is safe and sanctified. And I think that's part of what we, we need to sort through here as well. And and right. a, a second comment is that I think it's exactly the the betrayal side, you know, the living in contradiction to itself side, that I think for many people is the deal breaker that makes all of the other challenging beliefs of Christianity finally implausible. And therefore, there is a kind of, of of touchstone or neuralgic quality to this doctrine that in some way the others don't really have. So that's that's the kind of set of things that I wanted to at least start talking about today. We certainly won't f- finish saying all there is to say.
1: Quite agreed. The, the, I learned this as a pastor many, many years ago when I undertook a call to a small country church that had suffered some internal conflicts and decline. And I enthusiastically became a home visitor and evangelist seeking to build up that congregation. And I quickly realized I can go out and call, meet and call people to faith and invite them. To come and see. But if they don't experience the community of Jesus' disciples, where they love one another and by that are known to be Christians, if that's not there, all my pastoral visitation and evangelism, seeking to call in, draw in uh, new people to faith and form them also as Christians, was in vain the church has got to be there in some real and palpable sense as a community, a caring community of Christian love.
0: Yeah, I can go you one better. The first time I was a pastor, I got to the point where I stopped inviting people to come to my church precisely because I knew that was not going to be found there, and I did not want to uh, to uh, crush the the the, the fragile reed of, of reawakening faith. It was best to send them somewhere else. Okay, well let's um, start working our way through this by first of all just getting a handle on what exactly we're talking about when we talk about the church, because there are so many things that can fall under that name. So we could be talking about a congregation like our own congregation. Is that the church? Is it some set of congregations? Is it all congregations? There's um, a strong and venerable Christian tradition that locates the the real reality of the church in congregations? Or is the church's identity in its governance structure, for instance, does uh, like uh, the Roman Catholic understanding that the the Pope in fellowship with all of the cardinals and bishops it, that is the like the the center point or the thing from which all other churchness extends. Um, or you see some versions of that in Orthodoxy as well. But it could be any sort of governance structure. Is like actually the institutional aspect of church that way the real thing? Is it our denominations? Um, do we have exclusivist claims on our denomination? Or is it rather seeing the fragility and error of both denominations and institutions? Is it actually a tradition that exists somehow um, more ideally? And our minds. And that kind of sustains the manifestations and phenomena of church in a deeper way. Um, Is it um, the helping institutions or things that are done by the church, but aren't necessarily like worshiping communities or the church's own governance? Is that church is just everything that claims to be Christian church? And then we kind of have to like patrol the edges to say, well, Jehovah's Witnesses aren't really what we are, but you know some of these other wacky guys are. We we accept them, but not those. So, uh, what what are we talking about, Dad? What is the church?
1: Yeah, that's been the neuralgic question of the twentieth century, um, which I don't think God answered in the twentieth century, and is still dangling in front of us as the big, huge question of our times in theology. What is the church? And how do we go about that? You, I think you left out one very common uh, uh, understanding of the church. Oh, what's it's that? It's so, sort of like the tomb of the unknown soldier. The inscription <laughs> reads, known but to God. And there's a venerable Protestant tradition, especially, of the so-called invisible church, which is saying that the church is somehow underneath all that empirical stuff that we find so appalling, Uh, and it's not obvious at all uh, to any human uh, perception, and it's only uh, a reality known to God.
0: So is the motivation uh, behind the invisible church doctrine that that it's the Protestant way of of assuring that there is, in fact, a holy and sanctified piece of church property that we can keep safe the way a uh, Catholic or Orthodox claim would, you know, they, they would also reserve a holy space or, or maybe a, like an Anabaptist community.
1: Well, I think it's more a council of despair, a, <laughs> a Protestant council of despair. You know, in the 16th century, the, the Catholic confutators of the Augsburg Confession warned uh, the early Lutherans, the confessors at Augsburg, that if you go with your doctrine the way you're advocating, you will render the church invisible on the one hand, and empirically you will fracture it into a gazillion different pieces. Well, that was prescient. (laughs) That was very prescient, because if everyone has to decide what is the church according to their own individual conscience— there will be as many churches as there are consciences.
0: Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting close.
1: Yeah, that you know, I just wanted to mention the father of religious liberty in the um, United States of America, the Puritan Roger Williams of Rhode Island, uh, was a, a Puritan of Puritans, and he finally was so disgusted with all forms of church fellowship, even the rigorous Puritans of New England, that he became a church of one, himself. No kidding. And he broke fellowship with all other Christians because he couldn't find anyone who he would recognize as a fellow believer.
0: But he recognized himself as one?
1: Well, I guess I guess so. He became a church of one. <laughs> that,
0: that seems like a pretty dangerous situation to get oneself into spiritually. Well, of
1: course it does. I mean, I think that uh, you can see why this is such a a, 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 a mare's nest. Su- mare's nest. That's what I was trying to say. Such a mare's nest. Uh, trying to sort out these questions.
0: Well, I'm sure we could both um, go at, at great length about what drives us nuts about the church and all the ways that it betrays our expectations. But let's, at least for for working forward in this episode, why don't you just, you know, give us a, a working definition of what church is that we can proceed on.
1: I really think we have to take both Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit, and Trinitarianism, the doctrine of the Trinity. We have to take all three of these fundamental uh, Christian beliefs uh, and use them in a very strict and rigorous way to define what we're talking about. When we say the church, let's begin with the simple fact that the word we translate into English as church, in the Greek language, is ekklēsia, and etymologically, that word means those called out, those summoned forth. So, and sometimes it's translated into English as assembly. An assembly is. Uh, occurs when a summons goes forth and people hear, hear the call and assemble together for a purpose. So that's what an ecclesia is. It's it's an assemble, assembly that has been summoned into existence by a call. Now, let's connect that with Christology, Pneumatology, and Trinity. First of all, Christology. The ecclesia are those called by Christ into his fellowship, into fellowship with himself. Those disciples whom he teaches to pray together, our Father, not my Father, but our Father. And so every believer who becomes connected to Christ by his own invitation to fellowship with himself and through himself with God is simultaneously connected in Christ to all the others whom Christ calls to himself.
0: So by definition, there's no such thing as a solitary Christian. If you believe in Christ, whether you like it or not, you are indeed connected and attached to all the others who have been called to Christ.
1: Or you don't have a true Christ, and you don't really mean it when Christ teaches you to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. So, first touchstone. The church is the fellowship with Jesus Christ at his own gracious invitation, with himself, through himself, with our Heavenly Father, and all the more so through himself with all the others who are called into uh, his fellowship. Now let's go forward to pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit. How does this call of Christ actually get effectively communicated in the world. The gospel sounds uh, in the world, it's a public sounding, people hear the gospel of Christ, but those who are drawn to it are drawn to it by the special work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates and animates the faith of individuals which brings them into fellowship with Christ, and then binds them together in Christ in love for one another. Paul says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that mutual bearing of burdens is the gift and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. That's why Paul can alternatively call the church either Christologically, the body of Christ, or pneumatologically, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So
0: with that kind of emphasis on the mutual bearing of burdens, that seems to just practically, not ideologically, give weight to the congregation as the real locus of church, because it's I, I can actually bear the burdens of the people who are in the congregation with me. I can't bear the burdens... Um, except in a, in a sort of, um, as we talked about in our episode on prayer, in a kind of distant and more theoretical way for people you know far away in the world that I haven't met, and uh, even less so people in the past. Um, I suppose I can bear the burdens of Christians that I know who are not in my immediate congregation. But anyway, so I, I just wanted to, to touch and touch base with you on, on that.
1: I think we, in fact, the, the challenge of genuinely being church is precisely that the Spirit teaches us how to bear those uh, burdens of others in all these different relationships that you just enumerated. Think about this, for example. Uh, Inquisition, crusades, genocides. Super bad church stuff. Super bad church stuff. Christians bear the burden of that history. It's not someone else's history. It's our history. It's our history of our failure. Or as Lutherans, we can talk about Luther's uh, horrendous uh, attacks on Pope, peasants, and Jews. We bear the burden of that history. We bear that shame, even though we're not personally guilty of those crimes, I hope. Uh, um, But nevertheless, those sins of Christians past are sins of people to whom we are connected the living and the dead through Christ.
0: So is that the same kind of bearing of burdens though that Paul's talking about? I mean, maybe it's the limitation of my imagination, but I always thought it would be more along the lines of grieving with those who grieve and comforting those who are persecuted. I mean, that kind of like mutual upbuilding and sympathy kind of burdens. But what you just gave examples of there is, you know, sort of acknowledging responsibility and taking the weight of past sin and how that's you know, becomes part of our own history when we're Christians, too.
1: Yeah, I think that because we're social creatures and historical creatures, we can't limit the bearing of burdens simply to my individual faults or my individual relationships with others. You know, you can think about this very broadly. We, you and I are both citizens of the United States of America. And our families, our ancestral families, at least on my side, didn't come to the United States until the beginning of the 20th century. They had no responsibility whatsoever for African slave trade and then uh, Jim Crow segregation and all the terrible things done to people of African descent in the United States of America. But nevertheless, as an American, that is a burden of my history. Even though I'm not personally liable for it, uh, I am unhappy about it. And and nevertheless, uh, I have not renounced my citizenship. I've not uh, done anything to physically separate myself from the abiding legacy of racist sinfulness in in American life. It's part of who I am.
0: And you can't help but benefit from the uh, privileges that accrue to so-called white people since you look white, even right. though you weren't part of that constructing that, your ancestors weren't part of constructing that society back then.
1: Right, right. And even though I might protest vigorously against reifying, turn into turning something, in, uh, an idea into something real uh, that goes behind the very constructions, white and black. Whiteness was a creation of the slave trade to justify uh, a race-based slave system. Tell a Slovak and a Hungarian that they're both white. <laughs> or, or tell an Irishman or an Englishman that they're both white.
0: Yeah, at least in the year 1900, that wouldn't go over very well. Right, yeah. You know, an interesting parallel to that is in um, 2010, there was the formal reconciliation between the Lutheran World Federation and the Mennonite World Conference that was based on a many years mutual study of the persecution of Anabaptists by Lutherans uh, in the 16th century. It was the first time Lutherans and uh, Mennonites as the representatives of, the, of those Anabaptist communities um, had ever actually attempted to tell the story together. And it was a very interesting, I, I watched it a bit at a distance through my work at the Institute in Strasbourg. Um, but Mennonites continued to remember Lutherans sins long after Lutherans forgot them. In fact, Lutherans were like, what are you talking about? We weren't we weren't the kind to persecute and found out that in fact we were. We were not the worst persecutors, but nevertheless, we were persecutors of, uh, of Anabaptists and sometimes in pretty awful ways. And there were theological justifications offered for it. So in the, the process of this telling the history together, the Lutheran team became convinced that simply telling the history was insufficient, that some action had to be taken. And so um, through the LWF Council a decision was, or actually an idea was proposed that there should be a formal apology, repentance, and request for forgiveness at an upcoming LWF council. And from what I was told when this went into debate, um, it was uh, Northerners who said, well, this is ridiculous. We're Like you said, we're not responsible. We weren't there. We, of course, decry what our ancestors did, but it wasn't our doing. So it isn't even meaningful for us to apologize. And uh, the the counter-argument came from um, African Lutheran leaders who said, what are you talking about? Of course you are entangled with the life of your ancestors. You materially and spiritually and theologically benefit from Luther and the reformers all the time. Like you wouldn't be here without that. So if you're going to inherit their gifts and benefits, you're also going to inherit their sins and crimes and you are responsible. And one thing you can do for your ancestors is to apologize where they could not. And that was the argument that carried the day and led to this, this 2010 um, event, which was, I I was present, I was not like a a voting member and had no say in it, but I was there to witness it. And it was an extremely powerful event to see kind of embodied um, in a way that ecumenism rarely gets that actually, even after 500 years, the wrongs of the past can be named and addressed and apologized for. And the Mennonite delegation came, knowing this whole thing was going to unfold, uh, fully prepared to forgive. And so they announced total forgiveness on their part, and their assurance that God also forgave the Lutheran community its sins. It was was just a tremendous thing to see. But I think that really points to what you're saying about this bearing of burdens indeed can stretch backwards and forwards, not just laterally.
1: And the wonderful stories Sarah, that you just told, notice how naturally you shifted to the first person plural. We, we, mm. we, we. Right. And I think that's exactly how the Holy Spirit uh, stretches us uh, out of a private, a purely private relationship with Jesus, which is such an error of our times and makes us realize that Uh, as we are connected to Jesus, the living, crucified, and risen risen Lord, we are therewith by the Spirit immediately connected with all the other individuals who have been connected uh, to Christ through repentance and faith. And so it is appropriate to use the first person plural, we, 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 We sinned against the Jews in Martin Luther's tirades. We sinned against the Mennonites in the Lutheran Church's participation in their persecution. We, and this learning, this we, this we language is part, and especially when it comes to owning rather than disowning the sins of our ancestors. This is essential to what it means to be the church. This is Luther once said, Christians have this virtue, that they confess their sins and do not protest their sins. And I think at the heart of what it means to be a believing and repentant Christian, that is to say a member of the church, uh, is this capacity not to lie about ourselves, to break out of the mendacity, the self-deception that dominates the politics of this unreconciled world.
0: So the repentance that we are exhorted to as Christians, of course, starts with ourselves, but then it needs to be extended to the The tribes that we participate in, the the nations, the churches, the communities, and so forth. It can be, I think, easy for people sometimes to blame themselves, but somehow exonerate their group. And so we have to have both of those things. But, But I also see it happen the other way, that people can be extremely eager to confess and repent the sins of the past in a way that actually is exonerating their own presence. And assuming that now we're finally getting it right, we're doing this right, Right and that right which we never did before as if suddenly we've come already into the golden era and i think part of being the church now is also realizing that we are committing horrendous sins that we may not even recognize as sins and we should be praying for good descendants 500 years from now who will openly state and repent of what we are doing right now uh all too joyfully and blindly
1: well said well said in fact I think the error that you just identified, perhaps in our more liberal Lutheran denominations, is the predominant one. We can signal our own virtue by attacking the sins of Martin Luther 500 years ago.
0: Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and I
1: just, that's just to me a, a repulsive uh, evasion of our uh, sense of common ownership that is proper to being a church man or woman.
0: Well, and it also really undoes the repentance, because if you're repenting on behalf of the past, because it makes you look good in the present, not because you genuinely lament that sin and fear for your own sin and wish to be, you know, saved from it, um, then you're actually exploiting, you, once again, the victims of the sin by making them the occasion for your self-justification.
1: Well said. All right, so let's let's move on. All right, so,
0: we, well, this, I think this is a good digression. So you've talked us through the Christological aspect of church, the pneumatological aspect of church, so take us now into the Trinitarian aspect of church.
1: Right, and the Trinitarian aspect is when we take the doctrine of the Trinity as a whole, and as I've argued at length in various places, A contemporary figure uh, for this is Beloved Community.
0: That sounds like a great title for a book, maybe two books, Dad.
1: Yeah, I think so. (laughs) It was a term that was invented by uh, an American philosopher, Josiah Royce, who late in life converted to Pauline Christianity after spending a career in German idealism and it was popularized by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who I think uh, actually read it through the lenses of his study of the theologian Paul Tillich. Now, let me unpack what I mean there. And I re- referenced earlier St. Augustine's idea of Civitas Dei, the city or society of God. So, Beloved Community is both a biblically based... doctrine, in the great high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, that they may be one even as we have been one from the foundation of the world, one in love. In technical Trinitarian doctrine, this is called perichoresis. We've talked about that, so we don't need to go into that here. But the idea is that in God's deepest reality, God is a community of love, now that transcends our understanding. How one can be both diverse and unified. We don't need to go into all that. But the point is, is, is that the doctrine of the Trinity signifies the ultimate reality as being in communion, being in love with others. And uh, so, the this in this respect, beloved community transcends the. Uh, Ecclesia, the church. The church, as we have just spoken of, is Christologically and pneumatologically determined, and yet it lives beseeching the coming of the kingdom of our Father in heaven. So it lives before the first person of the Trinity, it invokes the coming of that person's kingdom, uh, but it is not yet that. Otherwise it would not need to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's something here uh, that the full notion of the Trinity as beloved community is greater than the visibly existing communion of sinners uh, adopted and renewed in Christ by the Spirit. Beloved community is a concept that is greater than the concept of the church, reflecting the wholeness of the life of the Trinity and the fullness of the coming of the kingdom. So why is that important? It's important because it prevents the church at any point in our historical existence from absolutizing itself, saying, this is it, the kingdom of God already is fully realized in the visibly existing church. And such terrible claims have been made both on the left and on the right in various ways. But the concept of the city of God, the beloved community, is a check against making those self-absolutizing claims on behalf of the real existing church in history, which always is exceeded by the kingdom that it prays for. And this is also, I think, in our day and age, a very helpful, I I call it kind of a mediating concept between the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the coming kingdom. And the theologian Paul Tillich, I think, had a a wonderful and important insight here. In his system, he called it the spiritual community. So I'm differing with him because I don't want to identify this with the Holy Spirit as much as I want to identify it with the hidden work of the Trinity beyond the visible borders of the church. But that was Tillich's point, that there is a spiritual community that is greater, that transcends the borders of the church. And I'm sure you've had experiences, Sarah, like this in your life as well as I that when I meet a believing Jew or believing Muslim or a believing Hindu, or even a non-believing ex-Christian, I can often meet people with whom I perceive the kind of self-giving love, which is at the heart of the Trinity that I believe in, and which enable me to enter into a human relationship of Christian love, even though they are professedly not fellow Christians. I I think then that a concept like this is very helpful for us today, that we don't have to damn to hell non-Christians, but in fact can perceive the hidden work of the Trinity in all sorts of relationships with non-Christians.
0: Okay, so I have two questions about that. The first is that I was sort of with you till the end there, when and then when the emphasis fell on other religions, I was surprised. So I wondered if you would make that something like Rahner's concept of the anonymous Christian. And secondly, I guess where I, I guess just backing up where I thought you were going with the whole beloved community thing is when the empirical church, as we regularly experience it, suddenly flares up or blossoms into that thing we are longing for, where, where church seems to actually really be like a foretaste of the feast to come and of the kingdom, where something beyond John's normal human fellowship seems to be happening whether it's in, in worship or some kind of other activity or extraordinary meeting or even just the, the mutual consolation of the brethren and sestrin or whatever so um, <laughs> uh, yeah so, so first answer the Rahner question and and then go back to the sort of where you're going with the whole beloved community idea. yeah
1: I think Carl Rahner's intention here was perfectly good though his formulation was criticized. For being um, latently or triumphalistic. So, those Hindus are really deep down inside Christians.
0: Yeah, I'd be really irritated if a Muslim told me that deep down inside I was a real Muslim, I just didn't know it yet. Or if a Hindu said that about me, that I was a real Hindu, I just didn't know it yet.
1: Well, I don't know if I would be so offended. As I've come to understand uh, Muslims and Islam a little bit better, if I was called a true Muslim by a Muslim, uh, I would find that a word of honor because that means they recognize me as someone who submits to the will of god which for them is the essence and heart of piety
0: okay maybe i have had maybe a different experience of being um proselytized by people of other religions who told me, if only my eyes were opened in so many words, I would come around to theirs. I I, I have to say, I find Rahner's idea of imperialistic and obnoxious and not a good way to move forward myself.
1: And I think he's been criticized. The formulation has been criticized. And I think the criticism is apt so far as it goes. But I think we should recognize what his intention was. His intention in that formulation was to say... That the reality of self-giving love, that comes from above, that comes from God's creative agape, is not confined uh, to the by the visible uh, walls of the church, boundaries of the church, but it can appear mysteriously well beyond those boundaries. Now, of course, proselytizing is not self-giving love, is
0: it? <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I I guess what still makes me concerned about that is is I I, I hear now and and recognize the good intention there. It just seems to me that it is implicitly saying, all good people will go to heaven in this very bland kind of way. Like, how is it not finally saying that? I mean, of course, I want to affirm, and I in fact, believe that all sorts of non-Christian people truly love what a horrible world this would be if they didn't. But that that kind of, I don't know, it, it It gets my hackles up.
1: Well, I I guess we have to always uh, qualify statements in theology and say what the context is and why we're saying them to prevent such misunderstandings. I I think speaking as we must from a particularly Christian point of view, and that's what we we theologians are about, what what particularly as Christians can we say? About God and the Church. That's the topic of this podcast. And I think what we can say about God and the Church as Christians, qua Christians, is that the love of the Trinity transcends the visible boundaries of the Church. And we may be surprised to find uh, signs of this creative agape love of God in non-Christian people.
0: So it should happily surprise us that the Trinity is present, but it's not intended to unhappily surprise non-Christians that they're being interfered with by a God they don't believe in.
1: Oh, right, of course. And if you said that, that would be obnoxious, right? And so we're just talking about Christian self-understanding here. Okay, okay. And now what was the second one after the objection Oh, oh, the experience of beloved community in the church? Well, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, if in some ways your Christian community, your community of faith on the local level is not a palpable experience of the mutual conversation and consolation of the brothers and sisters, the mutual bearing of burdens, the mutual uh, love that is that comes from fellowship with Christ by the bond of the Spirit, if that's not happening, wow, you're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble, I should say, if that's not happening, if if there's no genuine experience of beloved community within your congregational life. And I think most mature Christians realize that this is always an ongoing battle, That is, as soon as we experience it and represent it in our words and deeds, ah, tragically, how often we also betray it. That's why also in the same prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's, I think, rather crucial that we say that every single week, when the community gathers on the Lord's day.
0: So I guess the the, the point that I want to push to kind of uh, wrap up this this section here is just how how far can the church go in its outright non lovingness, unsinfulness, and still get a pass under Christ's holiness? Like, how can you, how far can you still go on saying that the church is holy when it's manifestly not, but it has Jesus? Jesus is somehow at the center. I mean, I think there are so many people who have experienced such harm at the hands of the church. And, and there are, are things the church has done that are really just beyond the pale. I mean, you mentioned the Crusades and the Inquisition, but, you know, on on much smaller scales, of course, we know all sorts of terrible cases of of, uh, church leaders, clergy, abusing uh, children or adults also sexually or exploiting them financially and so forth. Like, uh, it seems like, uh, you know, for the sake of protection of the fairly innocents, I, it seems like some kind of line has to be drawn, but it seems like drawing the line is almost the impossible task too. So so maybe I guess the, the question is, how can the church be remotely a safe place for people to venture into who want to know God?
1: Well, I think that God is really shaking up the churches in the Western tradition because for a long time they have relied parasitically upon their cultural establishment while these genuinely spiritual and christological foundations of church life have eroded so that the church in much of europe and increasingly in the united states is kind of an empty shell that doesn't uh, is is not transparent i mean even when we have this kind of way we're talking about the church as a community of forgiven sinners that because they've experienced the love of divine forgiveness, are capable of bearing with one another patiently and working through conflicts and issues in ways that are constructive rather than destructive. Even talking this way about the church, we will fail even in that task of mutual forgiveness. I think that's it's simply experientially true. So what do we do now that God is saying to the American churches, let's be specific, the jig's up? You've blown it. Left, right, center, it doesn't make any difference. You're going to have to die before I raise you up again. I venture that judgment. I mean, I'm, I could be wrong, but it seems to me very much that uh, the church in the United States is either the Republican Party at prayer or the Democrat Party at prayer. And that's all it's become in a society in which partisan political self-identification has become the primary source of human identity.
0: So the, the death to self that happens should happen to all of us on a personal level is also extended on an institutional and corporate level, that there can also be and needs to be ecclesiological death and rebirth, repentance and new life. It's not only on the, the personal level that this takes place.
1: Well, I really think so. I think that what you find now in the United States are pockets, local pockets of genuine Christian community, and they cross all the denominational lines. And it's exceedingly important that we not fall back upon denominational boundaries, but on a grassroots local level, realize that like Samson, God is pulling down the pillars so that the temple collapses upon us all. And then out of the ruins, uh, a a new kind of church, a new kind of Christianity will arise. But I think critical to this insight is the long parasitical relationship of Protestant churches of the magisterial reformation with political power. And even though there are, I mean, I I imagine many many of my liberal friends would be saying, that's right, right, exactly right, and don't realize that exactly the same judgment applies (laughs) to Christians on the left wing who are also saying, if only Trump weren't president, boy, things would be great again.
0: Then we'd have our beloved community.
1: And we'd have a beloved community. Uh, And the illusions uh, are just pervasive. And it comes down to the fact that in our kind of society, people primarily self-identify through partisan political affiliations.
0: Well, and I think that all all your allusions here and and commentary on on political allegiance, I think that shows is what's what's really going on is this long-term question of how do Christians individually and the church corporately relate to power of all kinds. And, you know, you can, you can be extremely abusive with purely spiritual power. You don't actually need political power. And as I've said before, I think there was no way that the Christians at the time of Constantine couldn't see what happened there as the hand of God to put a final end to persecutions and have a chance. To build the world into a better place, because man, the Roman Empire was awful. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, I think maybe this is what makes ecclesiology so interesting as well as so difficult is because there is a kind of cumulative knowledge in ecclesiology that differs from the kind of knowledge that we get from Scripture alone in the sense of, of knowing the nature of salvation through Jesus Christ and the Trinity and so forth, that the church actually does have to learn through time, does have to go back to its history and sift out where it's been through, and take those hard-earned lessons and not set them aside. I've always been frustrated that church history seems to rank the lowest of the theological disciplines in what seminarians think is important because it is probably, in some strange way, even more important than all the others because it's the record of what we have done with the Bible and ethics and theology and all of this time and what has worked and what sure as heck hasn't.
1: And the whole pneumatological dimension of, uh, of the doctrine of the church is uh, connected with that. What has the Spirit been doing with the gospel's history through the nations and the formation of churches for 2,000 years? In my book, Before Auschwitz, I asked that question, can theology learn from experience? sometimes I, I think, whether on the right or on the left, the answer is no, we know that the left is wrong and therefore we're going to contradict them. We know that the right is wrong and therefore we're going to contradict them with no perception whatsoever how they construe left and right being a product uh, of European and American history uh, and what those orientations even mean. And even the more fundamental question. When did Christians stop identifying as beloved children of God and start identifying as left, right, Republican, Democrat?
0: When did that happen? Or members of this nation but not that nation.
1: Oh yes, or this nationality, not that nationality, right, et cetera, right. right, et cetera, right yeah. Et cetera. yeah. So yes, I think that we really have to uh, take a good hard look. Ernst Kaseman once said history disillusions. And that's exactly why it's valuable. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Well, then it seems like the task going forward for us, again, both personally and institutionally, is to figure out what it means. How can I say this? To lay down power without laying down authority. (laughs) I don't know if the, the contrast stands up exactly, but it does seem that the church... Uh, again, whether it's on a very small level or on a big one, is at its worst when it thinks that its job is to seize and hold power for everyone's good. And that the kind of authority the church bears has to be the authority of witness and teaching. I mean, I I still believe that the church, that whatever that means, the church, (laughs) needs to be saying, no, salvation is like this and not like that, or God is like this and not like that. But that kind of authority is not the authority that then burns at the stake those who don't accept it or shames them to death or something like that.
1: Dear daughter, I think that's what you and I are trying to do with these podcasts. We're <laughs> trying to bear bear witness and exercise a theological authority, obviously, without any mechanisms of coercion at our fingertips.
0: Yeah, I hope I hope never to bear that kind of power. Even being a pastor frequently makes me nervous in that respect.
1: You know, but this is so critical to following Jesus. You have heard, you have seen how the Gentiles lorded over one another. It shall not be so among you. But whoever of you would be the greatest, let him become a servant of all. I mean this is just fundamental the distinction between the earthly kingdom and the community of Jesus. It's just a fundamental distinction.
0: Then why has it been so hard for Christians to remember that? And I'm you know, I'm saying this to myself as well as to others, but I mean if you do actually look at the record of history You know, it's right there, Jesus says it, and yet we have not done it so many times. I think this is why people finally get exercised in systematic theology class when it comes to ecclesiology.
1: You know, in my discussions with students and and colleagues around here where I live, you know, I keep asking my evangelical Christian friends, why do you need a patron? Why did you vote for a patron whose personal life betrays the very values you think he's protecting for you on your behalf? Uh, On the other side, uh, here, you know, the Democrat uh, candidates are now getting uh, really worked up and there's some very interesting things, but they're making exactly the pitch. If you care about gay rights, if you care about marriage equality, if you care about black lives mattering, uh, because you uh, these are your Christian values, then you need to vote for another kind of candidate. And so my question to all Christians, why do you need a patron? Why do you need a political patron at all? Right. Yeah,
0: that's very powerful. It is really interesting now that I think back at how much of our discussion about the church has had to be about politics too. Alas. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's maybe end on, hopefully what will be a slightly more encouraging note for our listens now that, or listeners now that we've thoroughly disillusioned them with all this history. Um, I just thought maybe each of us could answer why it, it is that we belong to a church, the church, and why it is that we go to church as the expression is.
1: You know, first of all, I I have to make it clear that it's a conscious decision and commitment. It's not something I do habitually. Uh, Habitually, I would be a lazy slug and turn over and go back to sleep on (laughs) Sunday mornings uh, or be out driving my tractor, which I find to be far more enjoyable.
0: (laughs) This is enough to a great start here, Dad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But why why do I belong and go and commit? First of all, because if Jesus is the man for others, as Bonhoeffer said, and I, I am one of those others for whom Jesus lived and died and reigns, and if I am so claimed by Jesus, then being belonging to him, I must belong to others who belong to him again, that Christological mediation. I can't have Jesus without his people, warts and all. So that's why I belong. Why do I go? I go because I can't tell myself the gospel adequately enough. I do tell myself the gospel. All Christians should and do remind themselves of their baptism, so forth. But I can't tell myself the gospel adequately. I have to hear it from outside of myself in ways that apply to me in surprising ways, which is what you get from a good preacher of the gospel. Insights into your own Christian existence, which you cannot self-create. And third, because it's important for me to put my money where my mouth is. So I'm going to get real brass tacks here and say, every Sunday when I put my offering in the uh, uh, plate is my personal declaration of independence in this money-grubbing neoliberal culture in which we belong, in which money is almighty God. By giving away sacrificially a portion of my income, To support the ministry of the gospel through the church, I am saying to the world and to God and to myself, I am a free man in Christ. I am not enslaved to my possessions. So those would be three reasons I would give for going to church.
0: Wow, that's powerful. And I didn't know you loved your tractor that much. Wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was it, it was broken down this week and I was in a state of near hysteria until I got it fixed. <laughs> I
0: can only imagine. <laughs> Uh, well, for my, my own answer to this question, I would say that I had the perhaps unusual, I hope not too unusual, joy and privilege of growing up and what I really did experience as a beloved community or a church in, in Delhi when I was growing up, um, which probably didn't prepare me well for unbeloved communities that I would encounter later. And I know there was a time, especially in my early adulthood, where I went to church And really the only reason I could give myself was the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And I was like, "Well, I'm not getting anything out of this, and I don't really care for it, but I'm commanded, and that's just going to have to be enough for me for now. And, you know, that wasn't the best way to go to church, but it also wasn't the worst way. It kept me there. It kept me hearing. It kept me connected to the body of Christ, which I think was really important. And um, as I've alluded to, I had a really painful first pastoral ministry, which seemed like anything but beloved community. Though, I mean, even there, even in some very dark times, I saw really beautiful flowerings of beloved community, um, which, you know, is, is a remarkable thing that the spirit can work even with the most unpromising and protesting clay to make a, make something. And afterwards, when we were in, in France, we were part of an international congregation that really healed me of that painful first call experience because it was, it you know, we, we used to joke that uh, the music was bad, the preaching was bad, and the liturgy was bad, but <laughs> why did we go? We went for the community, really. There was something, something there that was healing and blessed and made all of the other frustrations immensely worthwhile. I guess now, I mean, I'm a pastor, so it's my job. I have to go to church,
1: <laughs> but... Uh,
0: <laughs> you know, this is perhaps seems silly, but I really like singing hymns. Singing hymns does something and speaks to me at a very profound level. Um, even though one part of my brain now is always sort of, you know, implicitly critiquing the theology, like, well, I'm not sure that's quite right, you know, or, or, a, <laughs> or a tune is, is a little bit hokey or whatever. Um, or we're playing my favorite hymn and the organist doesn't get it quite right or whatever. But there's something about that. Um, I actually read someone recently commenting that music has a way of combining the worshiping God with the uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like nothing else can get like all four of those things that Jesus said into into one single unit, like like the act of singing does. I think that's important. And, and I do find now... Um, as I did in our church in France, I'm finding here again that 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 there is something that happens when such disparate people come together to worship, and we're all in different states of faith or unfaith at any given moment, where our lives are a wreck or fantastic or anywhere in between, we don't really know each other that that well. And I think more importantly, we would never get to know each other in any other context. There's no reason why our paths would ever cross. And so for me to, when I see my congregation now, and especially when I'm giving them communion, you know, and one by one saying to each person individually, individually, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. I'm just, I'm sort of filled with a kind of wonder, like, you know, out of all the people in the world, God has gathered these up, these very specific people here to be my my visible encounter with the whole entire church through all times and places. And, you know, I I strive, as you've said, to be connected to all of them everywhere. But it's these ones right in front of me that it's it's my job to particularly bear the burdens of. And it's just, it's so unlike any other thing we do in life, or any other calculation we make about, you know, a career or money, like you said, or, or finding friends that we can really talk to, you know, all those things, which are good in their own rights, but church just seems to, to just blow up all all those sort of things, and and put something uh, utterly unexpected and therefore purely gracious in its place.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Final word for me then is one, because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, holy, because the existence of this assembly of real people, warts and all, can only be the work of the Holy Spirit, Catholic, because this extends through all time and space into relationships, both present, past, and future, and apostolic, because we have none of the previous three apart from the gospel, which the apostles proclaimed. That's the church.
0: Wonderful. Amen. So be it. So be it. All right. Next time, our topic will be faith to the aid of reason.